1: Hey everyone, Leonard Kim here and welcome to another episode of Grow Your Influence Tree. Today we have Christine Ozimek on the line with us and she's an entrepreneur, visionary, a geek, and a management sensei. Uh, Before we get into everything, uh, Christine would you like to take a moment to introduce yourself and kind of tell us what brought you to where you are in your uh, journey right now?
2: Thank you, yes, and thank you for inviting me to join you today. Um, So I am located currently in Mississauga, Ontario which is in Canada, um, for those of people who aren't familiar, this is near Toronto, our largest metropolitan area, and it encompasses about 20% of the population of our country. And for further reference, Ontario, where I am, can fit in, tex- uh, excuse me, Texas can fit in Ontario one and a half times, and it's our seventh largest metropolitan area um, in North America. So it's a big area. For me personally, um, during my education, which is a long time ago now, I focused on international business. Because at that point in time, I believed it was important, having lived abroad as an exchange student, um, that pursuing um, an open world focus was important. And it was a concept that resonated strongly with me. Um, moving on, though, however, I ended up working for 25 years in the area of seniors' care. I began working in what in Ontario called long-term care homes, which in the states are known as skilled nursing, and retirement homes, which are most close to projects, um, and, you know, one thing led to another, and after a decade of projects and crisis management, I realized suddenly I had a career, and I stayed oh. with that career. Because the values um, within it, people, community, and dignity, really resonated strongly with me.
1: Nice. Yeah, it's kind of interesting how you started out your uh, career in like retirement homes and so forth. Um, seeing people at the uh, end-of-life stages could really uh, shape one's worldviews um, quite significantly when you really think about
2: it. Absolutely, it does. And you really, um, you know, start to think about age and aging differently. And, you know, at the earlier part of my career, I was also um, married and uh, a young mother. And so I was beginning to see, you know, life at both ends of the cycle. So, I, you know, I had, I had a young boy, a toddler who was, a, you know, a handful and a ton of fun. And I also was dealing with people who were aging. And, you know, really it was interesting from the perspective that I began to see uh, the similarities of who we are as individuals throughout the whole thread of our lives. And there are some things that just don't change that much, including yeah. um, what I was going to talk to you, with you about today is that playing and play is very important.
1: Yeah, playing is definitely uh, very important. And if you really think about it, like a lot of people, their main perspective throughout um, their life is aside from like their parents and children, is maybe like a five to 10 year gap within the years that they really uh, are around themselves. So um, someone in their 20s might know like what's going on with people who are like 15 to 25. And then people in their 40s might be around like 45 to 35. So kind of having that open perspective where you have a much wider view from all the way to uh, the uh, geriatric ages down to the adolescent ages, kind of opens up your scope pretty well, especially when we're talking about the topic of play.
2: It did. And then we realized at the time that um, there were a lot of benefits and, um, to intergenerational uh, activities, and we saw that there was a commonality in the approach to play. And I think that what happens from my own observations, I do not have data on this one, is that we actually go through a gap. So when we're young, we have one approach to play. When we're much older, there is a similar approach to play. But in the middle, we forget how to do that. Now, when we're talking about play, though, I think we have to, you know, start talking about what do we think play is. So if you go to the merriam webster Dictionary and they look at the definition They look at it a variety of ways, but specifically for our conversation, I'm talking about recreational activity, especially the spontaneous activity associated with children um, that is without a purpose. You're just doing it because you want to. And that's a very different version of play than we often associate um, with ourselves as we move into adulthood. We get very serious in early adulthood about, you know, life and purpose. And, you know, we start learning that what is an acceptable activity for play. But when I looked at what some of the residents in our long-term care and retirement homes, um, how they would approach uh, enjoyment and um, leisure activity, it really was just for the pure enjoyment of it in many cases, just like children.
1: Yeah, I could see that. A lot of people in their early careers, like maybe right out of school, what they end up doing is they kind of um, invest themselves into their career, and their focus becomes a career, then after that it could potentially become their family. And a lot of focus is put into just working hard, especially with the culture that kind of popped up where a lot of people kind of wore uh, work, as, uh, how much they worked as like a badge of honor and everything. Um, a lot of people have Kind of been lacking out on play, especially when they're running for promotions, trying to move up into the career world, and so forth. And um, kind of put play on the backside for a lot of career-driven uh, and family-driven individuals.
2: Exactly, it is and we're socialized that way. Really, I think it starts around twelve. Um, we even stop buying children toys around that age. It changes. So you know, it's. I think it's not just that we are focused on achieving those goals which you very well articulated, but we're also socialized into this earlier that activity must be purposeful. Um, Even when we look at how adult leisure activities are described and we think about them, you know, we talk about sports, but it's there's a a competitiveness to it. So, there's a a purpose to it. Working out, uh, fitness, running, you know, um, um, arts usually aren't Just for um, described about as arts, there's spirituality, there's enrichment. Not that those are wrong things, but there's there's a purposeful outcome, and even meditation and mindfulness, we're talking about a purposeful outcome. Whereas, if we take a step back and look at the fact that there um, is a benefit, not to mention a joy, to purposeless activity, then we start to allow ourselves to look at ourselves. Our lives a bit differently, and how can we bring those things in? And I, I'm going to tell you, you know, I've I've come to a lot of this um, thought process because I did so many things wrong. <laughs> like, <laughs> I've made a lot of mistakes in how I did things, and it was through those mistakes that I've I've learned to reframe my view on a number of things. But you know, so when we're talking about play, you know, one of the things I'll say is so. When you think about play, Leonard, what do you think of? Um, I mean,
1: I would think about like maybe like going out to like maybe like a club partying, uh, hanging mm-hmm. out, going to the beach, or doing some relaxing activities. Um, also, um, collecting cards, playing with a animal, uh, spending time with friends, and things like that. How about yourself? Well,
2: I have a variety. Um, so, um. Some of them are, are are kind of purposeless. So I I, I like to ski. Um, being in Canada, it's a little more accessible than some parts of, of North America. And um, But there are two different ways I ski. One way is where I'm doing clinics and I'm working on my turns and my technique. But the real play is when I'm just barreling down the hill because it feels great. <laughs> it's just so much fun. It, and I have a son who's 22 now. And, um, you know, I used to follow him down the hill because, so I could pick him up if he fell and now I just can't keep up. So, you know, we do, this is something we do together and it's a lot of fun, but there are other things that, you know, for play, um, I do one of my guilty pleasures is I like to watch the YouTube clips of auditions for America's Got Talent. Nice. Cause they're just fun. And recently I've discovered, rediscovered, I should say, aimless play um, in terms of just purposeless movement. So um, we have many lakes. Uh, we're surrounded by the Great Lakes in this part of Ontario. So you're swimming in the lake and, okay, I'm not swimming. I'm just playing and splashing and moving around. And there's a certain joy to that that I think comes closer to the meditation and mindfulness, but that we don't really as adults become that involved in. So this type of activity, in doing some further reading on it, and with my own experience, I'm seeing actually has benefits for us Mm -hmm. in our work lives and how we perceive ourselves and how we interact both socially, with like with your friends in clubs and love clubs too, but they've mostly been off limits because of COVID here. Um, but also in terms of our work lives. Now, in your book, you talk um, about ditch the act. Yeah. So when you're talking about ditch the act and um, becoming a more authentic you, do you see a role for play in that?
1: Oh yeah, there's a definite role for play and I find that a lot of people out there, what they really do is they kind of gravitate towards the things that they like when they really go out there and uh, dissect exactly who they are and I think when they go out there and actually do Ditch the Yak, what they do is they find a lot more activities that they do uh, related to play that they go out there and share because one, um, it's enjoyable to do two, it's able mm-hmm. to help connect them to other people, and three, um, it doesn't make people seem like a stiff business person.
2: Exactly, and I think also we become connected to ourselves and who we truly are uh, differently. So, you know, that's uh, an important area as you're highlighting those those connections personally. So, working in seniors' care, it's all about people, and. You know, a lot of what we dealt with on a day-to-day basis was very serious. Um, you're dealing with people sometimes at end of life and their families and it's long-term um, relationships that you have because um, people are living in the long-term care homes or retirement homes. And if it ended up on my desk, it was a problem because, the, mm-hmm. you know, it, that was my job. chief um, As CEO, I kind of thought of myself as chief problem solver sometimes. But, you know, we had to find ways to to be able to divert ourselves from those extremely serious moments so that when we looked back at them, we were able to work through whatever the, the circumstance happened to be. And we did that in our office in a variety of, of, of very small ways um, that um, we chose. One year, we all were given – we're mostly women in the sector. Uh, we're, we all had – magic wand. And, you know, there was a little bit of hope and aspiration. If we could just make this better with a magic wand, <laughs> it would be great. You And one of them actually made that ring sound, you know, like Tinkerbell used, or one of the fairies did in Disney ring. And we said, okay, it's all done. We're good. Let's move on. But it was a way just to take a micro moment of, um, of you know, purposeless joy to allow us to refocus on um, what it is we're doing um, for the day. And so that became a very important part of our work. It reminds me, though, that not everybody's ready for that. Yeah, they are. And uh, I had one um, circumstance. So all of almost all of our uh, long-term care and retirement homes were unionized. It's very common in Ontario for that to be the case in a health care provider setting. And negotiations are serious times. They take place over usually over multiple days and often those days are spread out over a number of months. Um, so in one particular contract renewal negotiation, you know, we're there and there's there's me and my team and um, our lawyer and the union business representative, and he's a professional who works with the union, and um, the union stewards who are um, work with us and work for us at that particular location. And, you know, we came to the end of the day. We're exhausted, and we're booking our next date. We found our date. But The chief steward looks up and says, okay, but you have to bring me a cake. That's my birthday. Huh. And I'm like, okay. And the business rep was new to me. I hadn't worked with him previously. I'd had an excellent working relationship with his predecessor. He was new. And he kind of came off as a bit of a gruff guy. You know, he had this persona. So months go by, and um, we fast forward, and I decided I'm going to do this. I'm going to show up with a cake. And um, so I did. I brought the cake. I don't remember what kind of cake probably involved some chocolate. In fact, I'm sure it involved chocolate. Very popular. And I brought the cake in, and the union business rep did not know how to handle it because he wasn't prepared for this. He had his role in that meeting. I had my role. We all had our roles. And this isn't how you did anything. But we began our meeting with that. We had, um, you know, we, we joked around about the uh, birthday it was unexpected, and it ended up being one of our best meetings, because wow. we started with the laughter and playing, and it was a joke, you know, really. I, I, I know they didn't expect me to actually show up with that cake, but I'm like, why not? <laughs>
1: well, I, I think deep down, by him putting it out there, he was hoping that you would actually bring a cake, but then I don't think he actually thought you would actually do it, so... I could see the pleasant surprise that he had personally experienced for you bringing the cake. And from the entire environment, uh, the rest of the people associated with that meeting, um, it kind of changes the dynamics of what could be uh, perceived as a tough negotiation scenario that would be with high emotions kind of uh, moving into a softer environment where a lot more people could be friendly and kind of get things done in a more civilized manner.
2: And it humanized us to each other. Exactly. And, you know, the negotiations often in that type of setting aren't actually about the contract. They are about um, the experience in the workplace. And, you know, frequently the union stewards were coming to the table with, you know, very specific incidents of things that had taken place. Um, Sometimes they felt they were in in contradiction to the terms of the agreement. Sometimes it's it's just what they didn't like. The majority of our conversations over the course of a a bargaining session, and when I say session, in this case, I mean multiple days, were about the experiences. And Mm. only once we got through that part of the discussion were we actually able to focus on the language of the agreements and come to a conclusion. So... You know, in this case, I talked to this business rep years later because we ended up having an excellent uh, working relationship as we established our mutual trust and respect. You know, he did say he was, like, really not sure how to handle it. Like, he was like, am I being bribed with a cake? <laughs> <laughs> Are they going to now be unusual and ask unusual things? But um, <laughs> the, good, the good news is there was chocolate and apparently the chocolate was well received.
1: Oh, nice. Well, it's about time for us to hop off to a commercial break. Uh, I love the uh, example that you kind of shared where uh, it kind of changed the dynamics of everything and the conversation you had with the business manager uh, uh, years are uh, down some time. Um, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you, Christine?
2: Well, I'm on uh, I'm on LinkedIn, um, and I'm also on, on uh, Twitter at Christine Osmec, just um, my name, and which I'm – hoping they can spell which is O Z I M E K. I should just probably give that.
0: Awesome <laughs> and you can find
2: me letters.
1: At... No worries. Um, uh, you can find me at Mr. Leonard Kim on Twitter as well and we'll be back after this commercial break
0: be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now visit facebook.com forward slash voice america or search for us at keyword voice america It will be the best hour of your week. Sustainable success is just around the corner. If you are an entrepreneur, business leader, or anybody looking for their next level of success, tune into Sustainable Success with host Chris Salem. Did you know that the path to success is a long path that started many years ago? The path you started on then determines what is happening now. Chris and his amazing guests in their field will help you navigate the path to sustainable success every Thursday at 12 noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Influencers Channel.
2: If you feel
1: stuck, exhausted, or just unsure of how to handle everything at once that life is throwing your
2: way, you'll want to listen to What's Important Now, Making Time for What Matters Most with Eva Medilek. Eva and her guests will help you learn to focus on the most important priorities in your life so you can handle them one at a time instead of being constantly overwhelmed. What's important now? Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel.
0: This is Grow Your Influence Tree. To reach Leonard Kim or his guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. Or drop a line by email to hello at leonardkim.com. Now, back to Grow Your Influence Tree.
1: Hey everyone, now Kim here with Christine Olsmack and we've been discussing a lot about uh, Christine's career in the world where she's kind of gone out there and worked in the different scenarios where she's been uh, on the adolescent side all the way to the uh, end of life, life stages and shared a few examples where play really made a difference. Um, one of those being with uh, working with the unions and having a birthday party and it kind of uh, changed the dynamics of the meeting and made uh, negotiations go more smoothly. One um, of the things that Christine mentioned earlier is how um, at a certain age we kind of stop playing with toys when we grow up and then we kind of look at them differently. And I kind of like that point when we think about it. Like, let's say we're going to like Target or we're going to a different uh, department store and there's the toy section. If you're probably over the age of 15, um, that toy section doesn't really seem as appealing as it used to. And then when we think about the Um, end of uh, our when we're closer to the ends of our lives like the assumption is that what people kind of do out there for fun is play bingo and so forth and there really isn't (laughs) much else to do Um, when you kind of look at those two perspectives um one from the uh space where you kind of go out there and you um section off the toy section and you ignore that to uh the uh, end-of-life stages where you're kind of looking more for things to actually do and play. What, what do you kind of um, think about those differences? And what do you think kind of makes people act like uh, that when they kind of uh, disassociate themselves from, like, the toy section and so forth?
2: I honestly believe it has a lot to do with expectations. Externally placed expectations. We are expected to be a certain way and we grow into it. And when we, you know, taking a step to the earlier generations of play and the theories of play of children, um, you know, the play is exceptionally important on a de- developmental basis for children. It's important for their learning and developmental milestones. Child's play, often we see them playing uh, with, you know, Dishes and um, there's a wonderful science center here in Toronto where they have a children's area where they have a store and the kids love it. They go in and so they're playing at adult um, actions, activities. They're imitating adults and there's a lot of learning that they do through that and socialization. Um, skills that they're building. They, there's problem-solving through um, play, and they learn independence. We encourage it all through the purchase of developmental toys. Well, um, as you said, around 15, we stop looking at it from that those perspectives, and we don't see that there's the same developmental emotional benefits. And, indeed, if you try and, and do research on... Studies related to play in adults versus children, you don't see the same body of work about the impact of play um, for adults. And yet we know that it does have a large impact in terms of um, our ability to cope with stress, in terms of our interpersonal relationships. But I think that the expectations are the gap. If I told you I'm going to go out for the weekend, you said, Christine, what are you doing this weekend? And if I said, I'm going to go play in the snow all day on Saturday. You might look at me askance, but if I say I'm going yeah. skiing, you're like, oh, okay, that's great. So the, the expectations, I, I believe, are a large part of the, the difference. When we come and as we age, you know, you, you hit your 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s, you don't care as much what people think. And I think so we release ourselves and we give our, give ourselves permission to play, which I think is an important aspect of it and looking at play not just as the large things but as the small acts of play, um, what do we do for um, micro moments of play, um, where we you know have a, a quick laugh? One of the things that my son and I started doing. Um, when Despicable Me, the movie came out, we, he loved the movie. And we, we, we adore Steve Carroll as Groove. And mm. we started imitating Groove's accent, <laughs> a random, moderate Eastern European accent. And we did it all the time. And we did it in the car and we did it on the ski lift. And it was just made us laugh. It was our thing. Well, unfortunately, I did it to the, to the point where I started doing it at work. And I'd have a meeting with my team, and I'd fall into my, you know, grew accent. And, you know, part of me is like, oh, my God, what did I just do? <laughs> <laughs> People are going to think I'm insane. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out they loved it. And Aww. so it, it was that micro moment of levity and, you know, whatever the was that we the thing we were talking at the time, was it a compliance issue? Was it a health issue? Was it an accounting issue? Because, you know, in a, in a business, a large business, we had 10 business units at five different locations, lots of different topics. But still, we found these micro moments. And by me doing it, um, partly just out of compulsion, others started to be able to do it in their own way as well. So And and they allowed themselves, and it helped them. So my assistant, um, Jessica, who was just fabulous um, at so many things, really um, loved to do analysis. That was one of her superpowers. And she had a certain zone she would get into. And to amuse herself and to help her in her zone, she would wrap a scarf around her head. And in our workplace, that was okay because we were very open and accepting this is who you are. You go for it, do it. But that helped her be in her zone, but it also amused her. Mm. And so those types of micro moments of play are very important. Do you have micro moments during your day where you just do something or switch into a different mode just for the heck of it?
1: Yeah, Definitely. And um, I like what you kind of mentioned where you went out there and kind of did Gru's voice to kind of get, and it kind of trickled where other people felt more comfortable in doing it as well. I feel that like a lot of people when they kind of just enter into the workforce, they kind of want to do these things, but they're either scared or uh, scared that they're going to be reprimanded for it, or they've had a prior experience where maybe like a parent or um, a situation in school uh, where they kind of did that and they were told that they couldn't do things like that so they're a little exactly. bit more standoffish and aren't able to kind of be themselves and enjoy those moments of play uh, what would you recommend for someone who wants to go out there and incorporate things like this because for, for um, your team it seems that um, because you led with the example of doing it first it kind of opened up the doors for other people to do it uh, how do you what would you kind of recommend for someone to go out there and do something like that in a uh, professional type of environment?
2: Well, I think there are a few things that we can do, but we each need to start with ourselves. And if you're not in um, a space where you're already doing this uh, consciously or even doing it and then now coming into a consciousness that you're doing it, it may um, uh, be uh, helpful to take some time to identify actions that bring a significant amount of joy to you without producing any particular results. Um, you know, there there are things we all do. And what amuses me and pleases me is going to be very different than you, Leonard, or, you know, somebody on the street. I like to play with words. I play with ideas and, and um, you know, joke about them. I do it in my head sometimes. and do it out loud. Those are things that I do as little micro moments. Um, but in addition to um, identifying those things that are sources of joy without a productive result, find different circumstances where they may occur. Where where do I see this at work? Where do I see this when I'm alone? There's a reason Cameron Diaz in the movie, I think it was something about Mary dancing, you know, on her own, full out, is so joyful to watch because there are some of us who do that when nobody's watching. And, you know, also, finally, when you're with your family, whoever your chosen family happens to be, are there also different or similar um, uh, um, items of significance or actions of significance that bring you those joys? So I think identification is the first step. And, I, and there are three steps with this. The second step, I would recommend choosing a period of time. Perhaps you want to do three weeks. Um and do one of them each week. You know, like, choose one of those, um, not one of them, I should say, one of those individual circumstances where um, you are, work or home or on your own. And, and do something. Just do one. But don't journal it. Um, don't put it on a timer. You know, don't make it work. Just um, do it. And then the third thing is, at the end of that period of time, wherever whatever period of time you have, but just give yourself the opportunity to say, you know, did I like it or not? And if you did, great, keep going with it. And how did it impact the people around me? So a bit of just an assessment on how that impacted you, and did it seem to impact your your um, relationships? Going back to having worked in seniors' care and speaking about early career, you're you're very correct that we all come with these these thought processes of who we're supposed to be. So in when I started my career, I was a manager and I thought I had to be firm and I'm also five foot ten as a woman, so I'm very tall, working in a sector almost exclusively of women. So I'm towering over people, so that's intimidating. So I started trying to change who I was externally to Um, connect better with people. I wore muted colors. I tried to do um, most of my meetings sitting down, so I didn't towel over people. And then one day I went to work and I I was wearing this red coat with fringe, and one of the ladies who lived in the retirement home stopped me, and she said, that's the best thing you've worn here today. This is it. And it was, wow, okay, what's different? Well, it's bright red. You can't miss me. But it was fun, and it and it was also very much me. And I had another um, blazer that was, believe it or not, so and I wore that, and somebody else commented on it. And I realized I had to stop editing myself, and I had to just be who I am, and that when I was editing, I was actually creating tension in the people around me because they could tell something was being managed, and they were afraid it was them. But when I stopped editing myself, and this is a years-long process, I'm giving you the short version, um, it, I realized that, in fact, I was better able to connect both with the people who worked with us as well as the people we served. So, you know, going back to what would I recommend people do is look for those moments and just say, how can I be more me in a way that I feel safe doing? Because not everybody's everybody uh, feels safe in the same way, which brings me back to children. Have you ever watched how children get together and
1: play? Oh, yeah. They just um, go up to each other and say, hey, do you want to do this? Or they just start playing or they grab something and just start toying with it and trying to figure out what to do, like with Legos, or they'll just get a shovel and, like, dig through sand and they'll just do it because they want to do something and they have the time with their lives. And they say, let's
2: play. Now, I think there's a group that's in the – They'll just go right up, right away. You're right, and I saw this um, on when I would go to the beach with my son, and we would build these jumbo sand castles. I even had a special shovel, by the way, because the kids' shovels break. Just for anybody listening, the kids' shovels break. Go get yourself a good one, steal one. So we we're making these jumbo sand castles, and we and there were those kids you just described perfectly. Let's play, and they jump in and they get involved. There's another group who stand on the side and watch, because they don't know how to initiate that transition from watching to participating, but as soon as you said, do you want to play, they were in, and that's where that second part about, um, you know, people feeling safe to be themselves, sometimes we need to give others that little bit of an invitation to join us in whatever that moment is. And again, these can be micro moments at work. We're not, you know, playing all day long, um, unless, of course, we're toy testers. And if you know anybody who does that, I'd like that job. But <laughs> beyond that, we don't have those opportunities. So I think, you know, you, you, you obviously are a keen observer of people because you've, you've paid attention to how the, the children are coming together as part of their play.
1: Well, I I think it's kind of the same what you kind of mentioned with the adults as well. Even in, like, play scenarios, like, sometimes you could go into, like, a supper club-type restaurant where they have a DJ and everything, and since everyone was in a dining-type environment, they kind of don't shift out into it into, like, a dancing-type environment, and they kind of stay in place. And it usually takes maybe, like, a few active people to go out there and start that play and then invite others to come and join and for actually to turn into an environment where everyone's enjoying themselves. And other times it just ends up being uh, a stale night where everyone's kind of just talking at the table and not actually going out there and enjoying themselves. So even outside of the work environment, that kind of happens where the observant people just don't know how to move in. And if you have too many of them, then nothing really actually happens.
2: And sometimes it's just not the vibe of the moment too. It just, it, the energy isn't there. I don't have anything more um, um, scientific other than saying it's not the energy, but you're right. It's it, it, the group sometimes guides the whole uh, experience of it. Yeah, definitely. And, um, Sometimes I think
1: a lot of people in those situations kind of feel like awkward and tense about like making that first move. And even like when you're in an environment where there's a lot of people who are like dancing and having fun to kind of go and shift into that fun mode, it's kind of difficult for a lot of people. And but maybe it takes like a drink or two before you, you're like, OK, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this and actually do it. And maybe that's a lot of social conditioning where, you know, people kind of have been told a lot of things that they can't do or made fun of or something where they aren't doing things as actively as when they were kids.
2: It sounds that way, definitely. And, you know, the that can carry over into your how you approach your work and your workplace and your workplace communication as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, it's about time for us to hop off to another uh, commercial break. Where can people find you again?
2: At Christine, Christine Ozemek at Twitter, and I'm also on LinkedIn.
1: Awesome. And you can find me at Mr. Leonard Kim on Twitter, and we'll be back after this.
2: Voice America is available on your Google connected device.
1: Okay, Google, play Turning Hard Times into Good Times podcast on iHeartRadio.
2: Try it today. Get unchained. Influencers Channel.
0: channel
2: replay on Fridays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Change starts here. Change starts now. Join us, the Voice America
0: Influencers Channel. This is Grow Your Influence Tree. To reach Leonard Kim or his guest, Call into the program at 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. Or drop a line by email to hello at leonardkim.com. Now, back to Grow Your Influence Tree. Hey, everyone. Leonard Kim here with Christina
1: Osmak, and we've been discussing a lot of ways to really go out there and figure out how to incorporate uh play into the workforce uh, so you could go out there and be more happy and excited and uh, integrate uh, more play into your work so you can have a more productive career. Um, one thing I wanted to ask out of the curiosity is a lot of people kind of think when you're maybe like in a retirement home or something that uh, what fun is and what play is for someone at that, that phase of life is bingo. Um, from your experience, what, what do you really see as the case for that?
2: Oh, that's such a great question. Um, the the irony is, bingo is a real thing, um, and because people like to win stuff, <laughs> it's just how it goes. But it goes beyond that. Years ago, um, Wii became very popular. Um, so, gaming consoles, uh, and um, the the reason that Wii was particularly um, popular was because at, for some people, after a certain age, arthritic uh um pain makes grasping a typical gaming console controller difficult but the Wii is easier so those became very popular um uh, there was a meme i found on the internet years ago because we have these preconceptions of what is fun is at a certain age and it showed two people in a retirement home fencing and the um uh the catchphrase was you know blank bingo you know Because really, it's not about bingo. It's any of those things that people find make them feel alive. Earlier, continue on. It could be dancing. It could be art. It could be humor. Um, Socialization is a huge one. One of our homes, when I was acting administrator on site, there was a men's night. And they liked to have beer and watch the ball game. And they kicked the women out of the room um, (laughs) that night. This is 15, 20 years ago now. And uh, they would let me in because I usually poured the beer um, for those, you know, when we were able to do that. So, it, you know, it's all the same things, and you are now. It's an extension. It's just you have to think of it as, you know, when you have um, a problem seeing you put on glasses, when you have a problem walking, you may use a cane or a walker, or you need um, additional assistance, but you're still a complete person with the full range of human emotion and experience. And so when you, when you reframe things in that, that context, you realize there's no limit to what is fun and what is play and also what is grief and all of the other emotions that we have in contrast. But I wanted to move into the concept of, of um, skill sets and um, the idea of play but, um, and work from the standpoint that we often, when we focus on work, we focus on a role and a job or a dream position even. Um, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be um, a firefighter. Those are roles. What we don't talk about frequently, and I have found that it does uh, change the frame that we look at our own careers and perhaps our children's or people we're mentoring, is what are the skill sets? that we enjoy using the most. And when you do that, then you're no longer setting up a career, and you're no longer setting up the intense expectation gap that a lot of younger people have experienced when they've completed their education, whatever it might be, either as a tradesperson or what have you in um, a college or university setting. And they get out there and they find out the job is not the job they thought they were training for Instead, if we focus on the skills that we routinely enjoy using and, and build up our ability to use them well, then the psychological impact of that is that we are now immersed joyfully in activity. And I know that sounds a bit cheesy, but it's true, as opposed to it being just work. And you yeah, see that. Sorry? I can definitely
1: see that. Like, for example, if you want to be a doctor and you end up taking the uh, surgeon route, uh, your main skill set is mostly about how steady your hand is when you move, as opposed to the immense amounts of uh, studying that you did during school. Yes.
2: I mean, all of that studying is going to come to bear, obviously, because you're you're skillfully um, uh acting and problem solving as you go. But by the same in you know, extension of your analogy is that doctor's skill set is not about running their practice and doing the billing and the bookkeeping that's required that that is part of being a doctor. True. So, you know, the more the doctor is going to spend their time, his or her time, in the skill set that she enjoys using the most, then she will uh, enjoy her work life that much more. My father used to tell me that work was 90% grind and 10% fun. And I think it's because he really didn't always get to be in his preferred skill set. And the more people are able to be in their skill sets, the more they can do it. For example, I enjoy speaking to people and connecting, but filing is my idea of a nightmare. It's a snooze fest. I can do it well, but it's a snooze fest. So, I, you know, my company is better served if I'm working in the skill set I'm best matched to.
1: Yeah, I went on a date with a physician once, and she worked for an academic institution, and she was like, you know, it's kind of not what I expected when I really got into the profession because I thought I would be directly going out there and helping people individually with um, exactly what they needed. But a lot of my job consists of going out there and doing outreach and figuring out how to get more patients and how to bring more people into the door so I could go and treat them. And she was pretty unsatisfied with the expectation of what she thought her position would be versus the reality. Of the other types of tasks that kind of came with it,
2: exactly. And I, you know, we don't break down now what really is the situation here. And it sounds like that uh, that she was in a role that really wasn't allowing her to use the skill set that she values the most in herself, and that she enjoys using.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of that uh, is kind of disappointing for a lot of people because. They think I'm going to go out there and be an X or a Y or a Z, and they think their uh, position's mostly going to consist of that. And if you're not like a machinist, then chances are you have a lot of other uh, a lot of other duties that you have to kind of do with uh, your position. For example, a marketer might enjoy going out there and making the creative messaging, but then they might not enjoy reporting the analytics and the numbers so much. And um, while there's one side of the position that they might enjoy a lot there might be another side that they don't enjoy like maybe accountants um, enjoy like uh, creating the Excel spreadsheets and doing all the accounting and so forth but then that interaction of going out there and presenting that data to someone else that like that could be kind of like cumbersome for them
2: exactly so years ago um, for a, a period of time I was involved in an executive coaching program here in Toronto called strategic coach and Dan Sullivan's the leader, and, you know, he really focused on helping the participants find what is their unique ability. What is it that you are good at but that you also find joy in doing? Because the more time you spend working in that ability, the less it feels like work. And I found this to be intensely true, both for myself and I saw this with my team uh, around me. So we also noticed it when we were hiring. So, for example, marketing's a great example. In our long-term care and retirement homes, often we had a manager who was responsible for marketing and sales, but also had to be a registered practical nurse, so she was a healthcare practitioner. Those are very diverse skill sets, (laughs) and it's hard to find them housed in the same person. What we found was that the most successful people in that role actually went to school to be a healthcare practitioner, found out... They didn't want to be a healthcare care practitioner. They liked these other things. So they had the knowledge base, but they were able to pivot with that knowledge base into a different direction. Your physician um, that you went on a date with maybe a person such as that who, again, can use her skill set to pivot out into a different direction, into one where she's using those skills. Yeah, so that's
1: enjoys- right. And I I see that a lot. Like, there's a lot of people who go out there and... I I mean, when you think about it, choosing what you want to do for the rest of your life at um, 17, 18 probably isn't the most reliable way (laughs) to figure out what you want to do. But there's a lot of people who end up like maybe going out there and getting like a graphic design degree and doing it for maybe like 10, 15 years and going, wow, do you know how many people want free work from me? (laughs) And they're like, I need to go do something different. So then they think about like coding, engineering and so forth. And. And I don't know, like a lot of people kind of want to go out there and do different things. And uh, school, for one, kind of makes it a little bit myopic where it's like, okay, you're sticking to one swing lane and this is exactly what you're going to do for the rest of your life. When in reality, uh, that kind of becomes quite daunting for a lot of people and they kind of experience burnout too.
2: Exactly. So how does that part of our conversation mix with play? And I believe it's because there's an intersectionality in those thought processes. The first is that, you know, play is something we may do um, on an intermittent basis, and there are things that bring us joy, and it's not work. It's the opposite, and it might be not productive-oriented. Our skill sets at work, of course, we need to be production-oriented and outcome-oriented, but if we can incorporate some of the same types of Uh, experiences, of skills we like using that feel more like play, then now we have an intersection on how it can impact our careers, it can impact our work relationships, and it can impact how um, we resonate with other people, which I believe may go with your concept of a personal brand, because that's how we resonate with people
1: yeah I can definitely see that with a personal brand we're basically an extension of it's basically an extension of exactly who we are and the more we can mm-hmm. incorporate things that we enjoy into our personal brand or into what we do, the more people uh, see that as an extension of them of ourselves as well where they're like, oh guess what I like doing that too and it becomes a lot more relatable process which kind of helps overall in, in any kind of trajectory that you're go, uh, going towards because, the more people who kind of gravitate towards you, the more likelihood of succeeding.
2: Very much so. And, and again, it comes to that, that point of authenticity of who we are, because we're just being ourselves. The final thought I'll go with play is that um, we, I, I learned that we, again, internalize the concept of play or leisure as a reward. And, In my career, I have had the opportunity to flip that on its head and say, start with the play because you've got a big project coming up and, you know, you need to be energized for that. We're energized when we play. So in this particular situation, um, I led our company to a successful exit in 2017. It's an arduous process because long-term care in Ontario is the most regulated sector after nuclear in Canada And so there were a lot of details. Pushed and pushed and pushed our way through. It's closing three weeks away. And I said, I'm going skiing. (laughs) We left for four days, had a ball barreling down the hills at speeds that probably aren't smart. And came back and I was able to refocus. And time and time and again, I see that we do this in large ways and small ways where we allow play not to be our reward, But we say, this is a pool of energy for me. I'm going to access
1: it. I I could definitely see if you change that up, where if you move the scheme to after the deal was down, how you could hit burnout, how the deal could be frustrating, how it could um, heighten up your emotions where you're not uh, negotiating as clearly as you want to or missing over other details because of all the stress that kind of piles up from an intense situation like that. So I definitely see how tying in skiing and putting play into the beginning of the process kind of flips it around and energizes you to go through it. And a lot of people don't actually do that. Uh, What's the last final tip that you may have so that people could go out there and not feel guilty about Uh, putting play before a situation like that?
2: It comes back to the airlines. When the oxygen masks fall, you have to put the oxygen mask on yourself before you can help anyone else.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Christine, for joining us for uh, and sharing all your insights on play today. Uh, you can find Christine Ozmek on Twitter or on LinkedIn. Uh, her last name is spelled O-Z-I-M-E-K. Uh, you can find me at Mr. Leonard Kim on Twitter. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for another episode of Grow Your Influence Tree, and we'll see you next week.
0: Thank you for making us part of your week. Listen for Grow Your Influence Tree with Leonard Kim every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Stand out, stand apart, and become a top influencer. We'll see you here next week.